Hello, it is Liam Schmidt here from Irish Funds. We are delighted to bring you the next podcast episode, this time from our recent event we held in collaboration with HSBC, entitled China, Reopening and Rebound, Insights on Market Opportunities and Challenges. The panel discussion will be chaired by Paul Martin from PwC, with contributions from our esteemed panellists, Tae Yu from Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing Limited, Florence Lee from HSBC Markets and Security Services, and Michelle Lloyd from KL Gates. Our expert lineup of speakers will debate key topics shaping the future growth of Hong Kong and China equity markets, including the latest updates to Stock Connect and ETF Connect, the legal developments for accessing these programs, and implications of potential regional index changes. I'm sure you'll find the insights to be fascinating, and do keep an eye out for further podcasts shortly from the Irish Funds podcast channel. First of all, just thanks to everyone for joining us today. Um, we we have a number of, of prepared questions, but there will be time at the end for Q and A. So, for any questions you have, we'll keep them to the end. Um, so, maybe if I could kick things off, say maybe just speaking on to come to you first, uh, particularly on the back of what you've just spoken about around the MSCI change, that potential weighting change with with China absorbing some of uh, some of that weighting that's that South Korea has. Can you just talk about, I suppose, Hong Kong readiness, readiness for that? How does Hong Kong prepare for that expansion? What are some of the challenges that, that you see associated with that? Hello. Oh, this works. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, the, the challenge still is many of you in this room, um, sorry, many of you in this room uh, still appreciate um, so there are two issues that we have to deal with in Asia. The thousand pound gorilla sitting in the other corner of the room is called T plus one US market change next year. That's going to be effective in May. The reason that's a problem and challenge for uh, Asia uh, investors, in particular those in, in, in and services industry for securities settlement is that Asia uh, typically is... 15 to 12 hours ahead, um, especially if you're someone sitting in Australia, um, uh, putting aside FX's two-day settlement, if you move U.S. settlement by one day, you're essentially having to operate in almost like a synthetic T0 environment. Um, that's an extremely difficult uh, operational challenging environment to operate in. And China hasn't changed. China still is a T0 settlement. Uh, no fail trade, uh, have to pre-trade check every sell trade. So that rule still remains the same. And while China still is, and you saw the graph, 33% of the emerging market index, it's not a small number. Um, you still, and we just added 1,000 plus uh, stocks to the portfolio. So the operational, um, what we consider the pressure still remains the same. And when you add U.S. migration to T plus one, and I'm sure many of you are dealing with that issue in this time zone, but uh, those investors uh, and also service providers in Asia are also equally concerned about that combining effect of, uh, of what we consider the stretching of the resources. So what are we doing about it? Well, there's two things, really. Um, we are uh, working with uh, industry participants to launch a new platform that's a smart contract design called Synapse. Now, Synapse is a 
pseudo blockchain design uh, communication network that we will deploy to Stack Connect, and we will go live. Uh, hopefully uh, Q3 this year, subject to regulatory approval. And, uh, it, and we've already gone through two stages of testing with five fund managers. Um, and thank you, HSBC, for being part of that uh, pilot program, uh, together with a number of other global and local custodians and several brokers. And, and what this does is that for the first time in industry history, you will get a real-time trade confirmation and affirmation messaging uh, through a smart contract network layer. And uh, this works beautifully. We've, we've gone through now, it took us about three and a half years to build it. Now, many of you have heard um, the situation that developed from Australia Stock Exchange, where they had to basically decommission, unfortunately, a block blockchain project that was supposed to replace their entire clearing system. Uh, we didn't go that way. We decided to use similar concept, but only deploy smart contract on messaging layer between the buy side, sell side, global, local custodian, and us, CCAS. So what will happen is in real time, everyone in that network, rather than relying on sequence-based messaging protocol where confirmation and affirmation has to be replicated by each of the party, uh, everyone can confirm and affirm in real time basis with one golden source, the fund manager who creates the instruction and who reaffirms the settlement instruction once it's done, and the other side of the golden source, which is us, once we are able to match both sell side and custodial uh, trade confirmation and settlement, we're able to send that confirmation message out in real time. It works beautifully. So hopefully once we're able to deploy this, it's gonna be a slow start in terms of market adaptation, um, but we're hoping that it'll go a long way in addressing a lot of operational challenges that many of the industries facing today, at least in the context of A-shares. Um, some of the participants are saying, if this is able to be successfully adapted for A-shares, that means it allows operational resources to be allocated to deal with the US market issues, rather than having to juggle both at the same time. So we're hoping that uh, it'll go a long way in helping uh, resolving some of those operational challenges. Uh, the other item that uh, we're also working on is really around uh, the regulatory challenges and, and enhancements that we continue to have to make. Um, it, it's, uh, it's important that while Stock Connect uh, being successful as it is, we still have a long way to go in terms of uh, addressing the market needs to be able to operate much more cost efficiently. So features such as block trading is missing. And black trading is important because uh, for ETF investors globally, many of them only use block trading. So they're unable to use Connect program today to invest in northbound ETF Connect uh, that's offered to investors. So these are the enhancements that we're gonna have to make. Stop our lending. Uh, we still have to enhance the eligibility and rules to allow agent lending uh, to be allowed. Uh, right now, agent lending in Stock Connect is not allowed. Hence, there's no stock borrow lending. Hence, there's no short selling. While the rule allows it, that agent lending eligibility is not in there. So we're trying to improve that. 
Um, holiday trading, there I say, we added one day, but we're still closed when China is open, when Hong Kong is on holiday. And that's a challenge for us because that adds additional counterparty risk, that adds cost to the industry. And it's a challenge for us because when it's Good Friday and Easter Monday, we have to tell the bankers to come to work in Hong Kong, whereas China is fully open. So we haven't really got our arms around as to how to resolve that. Um, but, but obviously, there are different opportunities that, that we're looking at, such as there's a Greater Barrier Initiative, which many of you may have heard. Um, in Greater Barrier Initiative is where Hong Kong, uh, Guangdong province, which is just north of Hong Kong area, is economically tied uh, so that the banking system as well as the investment system can be uh, worked in unison. Uh, this is a big, big project that China and Hong Kong is currently working on. And if theory is correct, if Hong Kong and Greater Bay Area Chinese mainland banks in Shenzhen and Guangzhou and that area can have a same banking payment cycle. Then the theory is we at Hong Kong Exchange don't necessarily have to rely on Hong Kong settlement banks. Perhaps we could rely on HSBC China, for example, in Shenzhen or in Guangzhou to rely on the payment settlement obligation to China Clear. So these are some of the ideas that we're looking into. Uh, so stay tuned on those uh, three announcements. Great, thanks, Tail. Obviously, lots lots happening there. Lawrence, can I bring you in on some of that? What's your view and your perspective? Um, I, I think I, I quite agree on most of the part of the what Tay say. Uh, as a custodian bank, I think um, the whole industry sometimes quite struggle about the cutoff time for China market. And this is important because in the custodian chain, we have the global custodian, the local custodian, each they pay their part for getting the settlement in the right time. But um, I, th I think the industry has done quite a lot to improve it. However, on facing a T0 market like China, it's still a very challenging. And then uh, the P funding is also painful for most of the fund manager. I'm very glad the stock exchange and then from the whole industry, we, we uh, play a very important part to get this finally. Uh, hopefully that this blockchain is working for us and then bring new light to it. Um, also, another thing that is we keep on hearing from the investor or fund manager about the current stock connect is very successful, bond connect is very successful, but still uh, we hear the key ask from foreign investor, what about the IPO? And then uh, I think this is always uh, my 1 million thousand question hearing from my client. And then uh, IPO is one of the things that is uh, a lot of uh, in international investor wish to see in Stock Connect, at the moment, you can only participate if you have a QV license. And the second thing is about the allocation. So some of my clients, they have the QV and enjoy the IPO, but still the allocation to foreign investors is still very, very limited, and then, which is not ideal as well. I think uh, to improve that, it will be getting the China market more attractive to the fund manager and also to international investors. Great. Thanks so much, Florence. Michelle, I might bring you in and maybe to bring this back to home. Um, can you maybe just uh, give us your view and perspective on what this means for Irish funds and for fund managers, what impact some of these changes will have? Yeah, thanks so much, Paul. Is that working now? Okay. <laughs> Thank you. 
So just even coming back to the MSCI um, Emerging Market Index point, and if South Korea is reclassified as developed market, um, there's a one-year lead time. So it'll go on a watch list. So it'll be announced that this year it will go on a watch list for one year. So we'll have one year to prepare for the potential of reclassification of China. And then we'll hopefully know in advance as well what percentage will be allocated to China. So fund managers should have some time to understand how benchmarks will be reclassified. You know, as, as Tay and Florence have both said, um, if you're an ETF manager and you're tracking that index, that's obviously going to impact you. If you're a mutual fund manager and you're using the index as a benchmark, it's also going to impact you. One issue that's always of keen interest to international managers is um, foreign ownership limits in PRC-listed companies, which are 30%. So once you hit 28%, they typically stop trading. And the key issue is always, will there be suspensions? Back in 2015, we had a lot of fluctuation in China market, and we had a huge number of suspensions. So we'd use its managers who were investing in A shares, who in turn suffered suspensions with their usage. So hopefully there'll be some relaxation of that 30% foreign ownership limit in advance of there being a greater weighting to China A shares in the emerging market index. I think that would be a very sensible move on the part of the Chinese regulators to do that. Um, in terms of being you know, an Irish, a fund manager to an Irish fund and what you need to do, you'd have to look at your prospectus, your risk disclosures, um, your investment objectives and policies to make sure they properly um, reflect what's happening within the index. Um, so you should stress test your portfolio with your custodian. Also, one thing that could be impacted would be your SFDR rating. So to what extent are you classified as an Article 6 or 8 fund? I actually did a look um, yesterday at the Monterey statistics up until the end of June last year. So it's 345 funds in Ireland that have emerging markets in a title. So there's going to be a lot of impact for these funds with the reclassification of the benchmarks. And then also there's very few funds that are anything above Article 6. So from an ESG perspective, I doubt it will actually have any impact. I think there's only two funds from Hong Kong or China that are anything other than six at the moment. So yeah, it'll be an exercise of kind of waiting to see, but you will have a one-year lead time. So I think overall, though, a very positive development for markets internationally to kind of better understand China markets and exposure to A-shares. Maybe I also add one more point that is on this uh, MSCI classification. I think uh, we remember the first time when China is uh, adding to MSCI, there's a concerted effort in the market that we do a lot of investor educations. But at the time, I I would call that 1.0, that is the MSCI, including China, because we are talking about something very basic from China 101 and how to uh, set up the access scheme. I remember at that time, we've been very busy around the world to to promoting this MSCI going to include China. So now when we're talking about uh, Korea, we'll be moving out from the uh, EM index and then who will be possibly, it will be a major share by between China and India. I think we have to do the investor education again. Although uh, China now is been known by most investors, but I think this 2.0 of investor ed- education is no longer like what we talked in about six or seven years ago. We need to talk more like what, Tay has been giving to us, that is the latest, the technology, and also what about the, the economy as well? Why China is still entitled to this waiting? We have to look at the economy side, the second largest economy in the world. And then what is their driver? For example, the new economy, like the EV, and also quite a lot of the sustainability uh, shares in China. And then all this must be added into the investor education. 
But also it's not just stock exchange. I think everyone do a part, a law firm, audit firm, custodian bank, investment manager. We all need to play a part in that investor education 2.0. Can, can I supplement uh, uh, both? I, I absolutely agree with Michelle and Florence here. So uh, one of the key, the key points that, that we observed this year is while uh, these US-China geopolitical tension plus risk of China theme continues to play its way out, we saw a lot of active mandates and hedge funds leave the market. But the passives are still around and index tracking uh, and index following investors are still in the game. Uh, one of the key things that we saw was MSCI rebalance in May. Uh, if you look at the average daily turnover of the uh, second Tuesday, because the day, it was the day after um, holiday in Hong Kong, what actually happened was it was the third largest liquidity turnover day for Hong Kong market. And when you look at the MSCI reconstitution of the rebalance stocks, they're selling, but they're buying uh, different stocks in the similar category. So think of all the passive and ETF mandates doing the same thing because they're tracking the index while the active managers have left the market. What we are observing is exactly what happened back in 2016, 2017, when active mandates were uh, really trying to catch up to passives. And because there was a greater tracking error as China started to outperform in the yen weight, uh, everyone was trying to catch up, especially the ones that were underweight. And we're starting to see that uh, type of scenario play out again. And as investors have left, they have confidence to come back in, which was what I alluded to earlier. But what is interesting to us is that very likely, if MSCI ends up developing and increasing the weight to China, it's very likely passives again are going to lead the charge with the EM China flow, where everybody else is trying to catch up to passives. And definitely that's what happened in 2016, 2017. <clears throat> it looks to be, many of us say history may repeat itself. Uh, it may likely be the case. So, Great. Thanks, Tay. No one to agree with all that. Um, Maybe, Michelle, if I could just, following on like what Tay has mentioned there in terms of interest in the Chinese markets, can you maybe just uh, give us a view and perspective in terms of what level of interest you're seeing from your clients regarding China, from Irish funds regarding China, and any trends you've seen in that regard? Yeah, so I think obviously for the last few years, we've had a continued period of unsteady economic activity in China with, with the pandemic. So I guess the question is now, how will the market move and, and what's the way forward? So I think, you know, following on from what Florence said, I think you made a really important point there about this re-education process that needs to take place on both sides. You know, as an industry association, we need to be re-educating um, Chinese and Hong Kong managers about the European market and the opportunities here. And likewise, Chinese managers need to be coming to Europe and selling their stories to European investors. They understand the opportunity in the China market. So I think a lot more of that needs to take kind of place in the coming years. Um, HSBC did a very good survey right before the pandemic looking at um, the flows into China and what access mechanism was most popular. And it was found at that point that 10% of um, China market shares were being acquired through QFI and about 60% were being acquired through Stock Connect. 
Um, obviously, the Stock Connect program is just an amazing market infrastructure program. And the fact that in particular, you can custody offshore is still very attractive for international asset managers. Also, the fact there's no repatriation issues as well has been um, another key factor. And as, as Tay, you alluded to there with Bond Connect and, and the redemptions you've seen, we know that will, will act smoothly. So in terms of looking forward, you know, and what what trends do I think we'll see ahead? I think we'll still continue to see the Connect programs as being the main access mechanism ahead of QFI. I still think from an international manager perspective, they're more user friendly and, and they're easier to navigate. Um, I still think we'll see some more international managers going to Shanghai and setting up offices there. We've seen so many managers, you know, um, since the change of the foreign ownership rules and asset managers in China going into Shanghai and setting up there, we saw BlackRock in June 2021 getting the first retail mutual fund license in China as an international manager. And they got that on August 30, they raised 6.68 billion won or just under a billion US dollars in one week when they launched their first retail product there. So is there an opportunity in China domestic market for international managers? Yes, there is. Newberger, Berman and Fidelity have followed suit and gotten their retail licenses since then. So I think we'll see that trend continue as well, for sure. Um, the other trend I think we'll see is for international managers, they're still looking at distribution and obviously everyone's quite fee sensitive at the moment. So thinking, how can I achieve the most scale with my investment product? And if, for example, I have a USITS, how is there any mechanism to sell that into, into China or to gain access to that retail China market? I once ever did a securitization of a USITS to sell it in China and I would not recommend it. Um, one thing I'm seeing at the moment and I've had a few queries from is um, one thing uh, Tay just mentioned there as well, which is uh, Guangdong province and that greater Bay Area. There is an initiative called Wealth Management Connect, which covers that market of 70 million people. Um, and we've seen um, Irish USITS acting as a kind of a master fund. So domestic Hong Kong funds that are able to access that program and that 70 million population investing into a Hong Kong and um, SFC regulated fund, which can feed into a use that use has to be SFC registered. So we still see that trend as well emerge. And I think, you know, again, achieving scale with your uses product makes sense. So looking at those access me mechanisms and where you can find traction is a, is a great example of how, you know, the uses provide such a great distribution opportunity. Great. Thanks, Michelle. Florence, I might bring you in on some of that and particularly maybe from a custodial perspective, like we're hearing obviously the increased interest in China and Chinese markets from Irish funds. Can you speak about maybe the custodial network in, a, in terms of how that will help uh, Irish funds uh, looking for selling into those markets? Yeah. I think uh, apart from that, maybe I want to share some observation. So uh, John mentioned about five weeks ago, I actually in the same room doing another <laughs> event. But then after that, I actually traveled to China for almost two to three weeks time. And then uh, I've been uh, and also joining a few uh, major conference. So that's quite a good opportunity for me to directly interacting with the China counterparties. For example, I talked to some of the key fund manager in China. And uh, one thing is very important that is we think that, okay, I think in the market in general, maybe they also see the, the observe the data that is, uh, this is very generic, uh, but I want to make a comment is, uh, both the U.S. and the European investor or fund manager currently is quite underweight of the China market, particularly the active fund manager. And then um, a, a lot, of, but when I talk to the Chinese fund manager, they actually, they still see Europe 
is uh, one of their key destination. They need to promote their products. They want to be participate in this fund market. Uh, of course, the usage brand is very important for them. Um, thanks to people like Pat and also our Luxembourg friends, they have been doing quite a lot of work in the past decade that to uh, educate about the, the, the users' brands and the fund industry in Europe. And I think Chinese fund managers are well aware of this. And then they still see Europe is a very important destination. Um, I think it's because the last few years of the lockdown, they cannot come over to do any business uh, activity. I expect in the second half of the year, there will be more and fund, fund manager. Um, they will still see Europe will be an important part. They have to come over for business. Um, also, you see on the on the news headline that is um, about China and Middle East, and you see it, it's been all over the place on the media. And then uh, Hong Kong Stock Exchange has been playing a very integral part, a very crucial part in promoting that corridor as well. But I think uh, uh, overall that is a still under development, but a very good potential between China and Middle East. However, the 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 fund industry in here, Chinese fund manager will still see Europe will be a very important part. Uh, I think in the Middle East, it will be more driven by the sovereign wealth investor or the public investor. But here is more um, for the, the, the mass market in the fund industry. Great. Thanks, Florence. Um, Michelle, I might bring you back in. Suppose as we see this growth, obviously regulation is, is a really important aspect of, of all of this. Can you maybe talk to us about um, if there's been any updates in terms of the central bank's approach to China in terms of accessing uh, Chinese Chinese markets? Yeah, I think first we need to take a look back at what happened initially when uh, Stock Connect first was announced and evolved. So in um, November 2014, Stock Connect was introduced. And at that point, um, we had to pause from an, uh, an Irish funds perspective and say, what is this market access program and how does it work? And what followed was an eight-month engagement between the Hong Kong Stock Exchange Irish Funds is an industry association, the Central Bank of Ireland and the Chinese regulators. And I have to really commend both Irish Funds as an industry association and in particular then the exchange for its engagement and ensuring that, you know, USITs and AFES domiciles in Ireland could gain access to that program. But that eight-month education process was actually crucial for, um, you know, China's education around USITs and how they work and the issues that international managers are facing when they want to gain access to this program. So that, that process was actually crucial, actually, for all the developments that have happened since then. So in July 2015, um, finally, you know, Central Bank of Ireland gave the green light to use its enables to access that program. And essentially, the onus was basically placed on the depository to ensure that they can, can you know, have custody and complete custody from a subcustodial perspective over the shares, especially as there's a dual CSD model in place within, within the, um, the program. So... The onus was placed on the custodian to sign off on that, and the custodians did get comfortable by placing the brokers, the local brokers, within their subcustodial network. So solutions were found, but it took time. But that engagement has proved to be so useful from an entire global market perspective, and it was driven by the Central Bank of Ireland and Irish Funds as an industry association. And because of that, we now have real-time DVP. We have special segregated accounts in the, in the exchange. So I have to actually stop and commend the Central Bank of Ireland for that engagement at the time, whereas at the time it was rather frustrating and our clients were like, why can't we access this now? But as a consequence, we've had a number of enhancements to the, to the programs, um, which have actually benefited everyone globally. 
So since then, there's been very little amendment to the central bank's Q&As on the Connect programs. They basically remain as is in terms of access. So I think the main thing from my perspective is that there is now kind of a direct dialogue between the exchange, the central bank and Irish funds as an industry association on these matters. And that we also know that when new um, initiatives come out, the central bank and the exchange will engage in this. Indeed, when Bond Connect came out, immediately the exchange formed a uses working group in Hong Kong to ensure that all matters would be addressed. So I think the engagement is there and it's excellent. So I think the central bank welcomes seeing these new initiatives come out and the engagement going forward on it. Yeah, to, just to supplement that, <clears throat> obviously, Swap Connect, which I shared with all of you, is a new Connect initiative. Uh, so this will be uh, updated and shared with the central bank officials. Um, uh, Swap Connect uh, is slightly different animal because it is uh, derivatives. It is a mandatory OTC clear product, uh, being an interest rate swap market onshore. Uh, but the good news, good news is that uh, o- Hong Kong Exchange OTC Clear, which is similar concept to CCAS on Stock Connect, and then connecting to onshore Shanghai Clearinghouse, which is a similar concept to China Clear on Stock Connect. It's a CCP to CCP linkage in OTC Clear, mandatory clear product. Both CCPs are ESMA Tier 1, uh, third country recognized. Um, Shanghai no got approved. Issues. Yeah, yeah. The Shanghai got approved in November last year. Finally, uh, Hong Kong has been approved for 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 many many years. So that allows a number of different uh, regulatory questions and concerns. Uh, everything that we do on Swap Connect has to be um, applicable and complied under the ESMA Emir requirements. Uh, so so we're in good standing there. So so hopefully no issues. There's also a little side story where we're developing the Swap Connect in the in the past year or so. And then uh, one of the interesting things I think is we accumulate so many years of the experience in the industry for every party work together. It's important that we need to have experts like Michelle and Tay, they know very well. And also our, my, my colleagues in, in Europe know so well about the regulatory requirement, no matter in Europe or in some of the major regions while we have to reflect it back to the Chinese regulator, because when they create a new initiative, they may sometimes overlook some of the very important principles, for example, investor education, uh, the investor protection, the ownership, that kind of thing, and DVP, that is, we cannot compromise here in Europe. And this is why this is so important. We have to bridge that gap. Uh, in the Swap Connect, one of the side stories is uh, when my team told me about, oh, they may be in the phase one, they want to only offer to certain regional country. And then their definition is very straightforward, just straight cut. But I voice out to them, in Europe, you must include Luxembourg and Ireland because these, at least these two, is the most major fund domicile. You cannot uh, uh, exclude that. Because in their idea, yes, fund manager mostly in London or in Frankfurt or in Germany, but they forget about the concept of fund domicile. So we voice out that you have to take into account, otherwise your program will not be working. Fund manager, no matter how much they like, they cannot use it. So it's simply like that. Yeah, just, just, to, uh, just to supplement Florence's point. Um, so in our business, uh, really uh, when there are inefficiencies, in place, there's two ways to address it. One is through regulatory breakthrough, which is what Michelle talked about. 
The other one is through market uh, um, participants coming up with a very creative solution to address those challenges. Uh, one of the things that Bond Connect does not have is repo access to onshore bond market. Um, in uh, swap market, one of the uh, cost, most cost efficient way of funding the swap trade is through using repo as a collateral. And because Bond Connect does not allow repo market access, well, somebody has to come up with financing on all these swap trades of hedging that investors want to do. So don't be surprised if, uh, if the market participants end up coming up with some creative ways, whether it's a tri-party uh, pledge type format where the non-trade transfer still is kept intact, but you know, if it's the same beneficial owner on bond securities, why not finance it through security service provider since repo is not allowed, for example, uh, on swap market in the form of collateral. So those are some of the key creative areas that's being discussed by the industry. Right, thanks, Diane. A nice challenge to the audience to come up with new ideas for you going forward. Um, we spoke about Stock or Swap Connect. Can I just get your views on ETF Connect? Obviously, ETFs are really important from an Irish perspective. Can you maybe give us some updates in terms of trains, flows, um, and, and how that program has gone? Yeah, the Southbound ETF Connect has been very successful, only allowed six um, uh, uh, based on various different uh, regulatory considerations. Uh, right now, it's roughly about 55 to 6% of the uh, overall Hong Kong ETF market, still early days, uh, but we've only included it in less than a year. Um, uh, when it comes to northbound, there are a number of challenges. Um, you know, there are U.S. sanctions where some of the ETFs that has uh, U.S. sanctioned companies uh, included in the indices. And when you have that, those ETFs are not eligible because it's uh, considered securities investment. Um, so uh, by and large, U.S. investors uh, are unable to invest in some of these elements. Um, but putting that aside uh, more recently, uh, because onshore ETF market is so much bigger and so much more liquid, uh, we are able to, to really get closer to a uh, little bit better in terms of uh, liquidity. We have more international investors looking at onshore listed ETFs. Interestingly enough, a lot of it is thematic. So uh, just following up to uh, Michelle's comments earlier, there are really three things investors look for now when it comes to China opportunity. And I think um, it, it was also uh, briefly mentioned one, is diversification. So China, generally equities and fixed income and credit, credits included, is very, very low correlated to developed market. Um, just saw PBOC lower the rates, right? Uh, they were going the opposite way of US and Europe and the rest of the world. And what's interesting is that uh, China for five years to six years when we launched Connect program, it was all about catch up, catch up, catch up, China tracking error, error, alpha, 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 China, because it's growth. We're now at a place where 10% of global bond indices include Chinese bonds, passive, okay, ETF. Um, another 33% of equity indices, you know, FTSE is about 25%, includes China. <clears throat> so if you're an asset owner, you now have China exposure on both fixed income and equities if you're allocating to passive mandates, 
right? So then you now have to think about how do I balance my China exposure between fixed income and equities? And how does that correlate to my exposure rest of the world, including developed market? So an interesting development came out. Um, remember many of you, the banking incident in US called SVB? Yeah, uh, we all remember that. Um, so when SVB incident happened in the US, if you look at, so what you have to do, you look at the credit market. And if you look at the US corporate credit, I mean, it was literally minus 10 to 12% investment grade. And if you look at the developed market credit, also minus 10, 12% during the period of volatility. If you look at emerging market, emer uh, emerging market ex China, well, now China is somewhat included. Um, credit, it was still around minus 11%. China credit, positive three uh, during the first quarter period. So when you start to look at allocation in terms of how much are you really exposed to volatility and liquidity incident, you cannot <laughs> underestimate uh, reallocation to China. And this is starting to play out. This was Michelle's point earlier. Investors are now starting to understand that with China's exposure, you have a great liquid market that you can manage volatility by the virtual diversification. And uh, to do that, you have to have liquid market. In China, both equities and fixed income is extremely liquid. Their credit market is also equally very, very liquid. So it, it's now become uh, a much more of a diversification viewpoint that investors are now looking into, which is an important point. Yeah, the risk off is there, the sanction is there, geopolitics is there, but you cannot change the numbers. The number speaks for itself. When rest of the world is down double digit, China is up single digit. If you hedge your allocation balanced very nicely with China, you're managing your volatility much better than otherwise, so. Great, thanks, Tay. Um, Michelle, maybe you just get your view, um, given the importance of ETFs in the Irish market, indeed the, indeed the global market, do you, following on from what Tay has outlined there, do you see a place for Irish ETFs in the ETF, in the ETF program? I would hope so. So if you look at obviously the Irish market, you know, we have 67% of all European ETFs domiciled in Ireland. Then we look at um, the, the ETF Connect program um, between uh, Hong Kong and China. And really what we'd love to see would be Irish ETFs having a place in that southbound ETF program. So mainland Chinese investors can invest in Irish ETFs via that southbound line. As Tay said, at the moment, there's only six ETFs in Hong Kong that, have, that are being allowed access on that southbound channel. So that liquidity pool is obviously very limited and small. If you look at the eligibility criteria to actually be allowed to access that, you have to be primarily regulated by the SFC in Hong Kong. So it's for Hong Kong domestic ETFs at the moment. Over time, how could Irish ETFs gain access to that? Well, I think the first step may be Ireland having a mutual recognition of, of funds program with Hong Kong. And um, I'd like to see Irish ETFs being included in that as well. That process has begun with the Central Bank of Ireland, the SFC, but it hasn't completed. So if there was that mutual recognition of funds program, it would give Irish ETFs a quicker and easier access point to registering their funds with the SFC in Hong Kong. And then hopefully over time, if there's a relaxation of those rules in terms of, you know, which ETFs can gain access to those, hopefully if you've got a, 
you know, your second regulatory body is the SFC um, rather than primary, you could then be permitted to um, to list in Hong Kong and be part of uh, be part of that program. I mean, that would again be an amazing opportunity for Irish ETFs if that was ever allowed, be allowed to happen. But do you think? You know, is that, you know, the Hong Kong SFC is obviously protectionist. It's trying to promote domestic ETFs. Do you ever see a place for Irish users in that ETF? I mean, there's limited liquidity in Hong Kong, though, for ETFs. So what do you think, Florence? Um, I think the Wealth Management Connect uh, is launched last year, but it's in an unfortunate timing, I would uh, say that, because that is uh, during the very strict lockdown of China. And then even some of the, uh, it's only offered to the uh, the investor, uh, it uh, could be a retail investor that is in the Greater Bay Area. The event, 11 city all come together, together with uh, Hong Kong and Macau plus nine city in the region. Um, and this is usual, uh, uh, all this kind of new initiative, China usually roll out in the most plain vanilla manner. So it means that the products are not attractive at all, <laughs> I dare to say, because it's so basic. And the risk profile is almost too very, very low. And then, um, but I think the industry all agree that this is a very important uh, uh, steps to let the domestic Chinese investor to enjoy about diversification. They can enjoy those very professional wealth uh, management products uh, that will be offered through Hong Kong. And then uh, I think there's a lobbying going on now. Um, uh, there's a, uh, you heard about the WMC Wealth Management Connect 2.0, which is meaning that the industry tried to lobbying enlarge the scope of the product. Uh, for example, it will be like what Michelle described. I think um, Ireland or also um, other our friends in Europe also want to see that the funds could be open to some other. Uh, not just the China domicile fund, or we can structure it in a way that is like a feeder. For example, we have got to make it innovative while comply with the WMC rules. I think this will be very important because Chinese investors also want to see more product they can choose, not just the plain vanilla. Um, I think this is the very important step about wealth. And I think the two main themes we here sit in Europe, we can keep an eye watching in the China capital market is about those capital outflow from China. First of all, it's about the wealth. Uh, they have been uh, in the last decade or so, it's the creation of the wealth already. And also the last few years, because of the lockdown, the accumulation of savings is huge in China. People cannot travel, people cannot spend. And then they usually come to Europe to queuing up in the Sons Elysee. You cannot see it anymore. So the accumulation is there. But also the third one is they need to concern about how they can pass to the next generation. So accumulation um, and also generation. And now is thinking about the next generation. Wealth management product will be a theme for diversification. And there's obviously been an over-reliance on investment in property. Yeah. Yeah. In China and, the last number of and years. And the second thing, main theme we should keep an eye in the medium to long term is about the China pension. So there's so many talking about the aging population in China. And then I think it's been quite quite quickly the, the aging problem. So they really need to have a proper pension system to tackle that. Uh, we've been go through in Europe in that before about how to develop a mature pension market, no matter in the private government or corporate level. So China needs this kind of product as well. And also because you accumulate big pool in the pension pool, then you need diversification again. You no longer can only just investing in the China 
uh, as a class. So I think this is the long-term thing we need to uh, pay attention to. Great, thank you all. I think I might pass over to the audience. Is there any questions from the audience uh, for any of the panelists? Brian? Yeah, just, just one thing for the panel then. We've all mentioned the, the initiative, the Great Bay Area, Connect initiative, uh, which is, is, sounds very interesting. And I understand one of the elements of it is that any international asset manager, joint venture manager, setting up a fund through the GBA, uh, we get the grant for the establishment costs. I mean, that would, A, how many have been set up and which managers are looking at setting up or have any been set up? And B, you know, what uh, ramifications would that have then for Michelle mentioned the Irish or the French or the SFC, uh, other than for uh, sale direct through master funds? Um, is it likely that investors to come into those funds? Maybe I'll take a stab at that question. So the question was, uh, with Greater Bay Area, uh, how many of the asset managers actually set up joint ventures more recently? There's been more progressions and changes uh, to be able to offer product services to mainland investors. I think that was your question, right? Um, so it's, it's something interesting changed in the last three years. Uh, so through Wolfie, which is the uh, de facto Chinese regulatory requirement for foreign companies to have business licenses on shore, um, uh, you can either have joint venture where you need to you needed to find a Chinese partner to have a majority stake, fifty one percent minimum. Uh, and Michelle, correct me if I'm wrong there, uh, but that has now changed to the point where the regulatory restriction got lifted. And, and, and as a result of that, uh, we're observing many of the asset managers that used to have a joint venture roofie license now having a majority ownership. The most recent one that I uh, remember is Morgan Stanley Asset Management. Um, they were partnered with a, a domestic onshore asset um, manager uh, and, and, and basically they bought out the remainder of the stake. Now they're the 99% owner, if I'm not mistaken, of that particular license. BlackRock did theirs a couple of years back. Uh, Wellington also did the same. So you're seeing a number of global asset managers uh, going the similar route. Now, if you're not in China now, um, the, the, the sequence of the strategy for many of these fund managers are following. Set up the onshore entity offer products to uh, institutions and uh, structure product uh, license type investors. And then following that, get the next license from CSRC for retail distribution products onshore. And once you gain retail distribution capabilities uh, by scaling up your staff or whatever, then the next is uh, looking at various different um, branch offices opening up in regions. So what we saw for tier one asset managers that have been there for many years, they're now starting to set up regional offices in many areas, including GBA area. Uh, predominantly they were in Beijing and Shanghai for the most part. We're starting to see the tier two really start to work towards the regional areas, especially the Guangdong province. Um, uh, the ones that actually have not been able to, to go into China yet because the rate of speed to which CSRC is approving these type of fund products or fund managers to come on shore. Now, it, it, it's been much more progressive and open 
than ever before. There are record number of Q fees being approved, record number of asset managers being approved. So uh, if, if you're waiting, don't wait, do it. Uh, and and over, of course, as an exchange, I cannot make recommendations, but I'm, I'm just observing what's taking place in the market, that insatiable need for domestic investors to diversify also there at the same time. And, and BlackRock, if you look at their last quarterly report, their revenue EBITDA margin coming from China is a significant growth compared to year over year. And that tells you, and they're not just offering domestic products, they're offering different type of products to domestic investors. And, and there's really a, is, you know, a greater desire for domestic investors to Florence's point to diversify. Same reason, same reason why international investors want to divert. Chinese investors also want to diversify away from China risk. The other important item is the currency risk. So I mean, I think just now uh, I checked the rate. CNY is um, 7.15. Um, so if you're investing in a share, 7.15 is not a great place to be in. But if you had access to, let's say, southbound ETF, where it's Hong Kong dollar denominated, which is back to U.S. dollars, well, there's a currency play to be had in ETF Connect. So these are different elements of uh, investment appetite that Chinese investors are starting to grow. Uh, so uh, to answer your point, regulators are now much more open-minded and they're approving licenses at a record pace, point one. Point two, is domestic investors are now waking up to new products and they want to invest in different type of products just outside of sheer China exposure. Great. Thanks, Tay. Any other questions? Um, after this session, just remind me I'm buying you lunch because you brought us something that I really have been uh, wanting to address this crowd. So ESG is an extremely important initiative for China and Asia. I'll tell you why. Um, we talked about pension schemes that Florence mentioned. If you look at China government's 14th five-year plan, uh, one of the easiest thing to read about China is to look at their government plan. And it's written in Chinese, but there are English translations out there. Three of the top initiatives are addressing needs of aging population. That's one. Two is by year 2026, they want to achieve carbon neutrality in particular uh, with uh, carbon emissions. Three is their technology advancement. Um, just to give you some sample size on the aging population, we changed our IPO rules to allow pre-profit uh, healthcare sector companies to list with us. We're now the second largest healthcare equity market in the world behind NASDAQ. Uh, we've had over 155 uh, biotech companies list with, these are all Chinese companies. Aging population, they need medicines, they, they, they no longer want to rely on supply chains overseas. So they're trying to develop, China's trying to develop its own. 
ESG is one, which is yet another one. So one of the things that we're working on, we're still going through this consultation, which ends on July 15th, is in our public consultation, we're going to require every single main board companies to be ISSB reporting standard. This is probably the most aggressive uh, ESG measure that uh, exchange in Asia is putting forward. I would even argue globally. So every single listed company is 1,800 plus companies, okay? Uh, of which, okay, some of 256 of them are gems, so that doesn't count. So those companies now have to comply to ISSB standard ESG reporting. Now, if you're listed company, Chinese companies over there, think just you can only imagine what that really means to them. Um, a lot of education, a lot of um, understanding on what that really means. But uh, uh, SFC put that forward working with us because of the importance of uh, uh, mainland's direction towards carbon neutrality and the seriousness of it. And that we're basically making it into a compliance requirement for listed companies to be European ISSB standard on all of its reportings. So no more greenwashing. There's all kinds of greenwashing going on. We're trying to address some of those issues. And uh, we're hoping that uh, some of these uh, really strong stands that we're putting forward, we're able to help accelerate that ESG development in Asia time zone. So stay tuned on that one. There will be transitional period. Probably it'll take about a year, but the effective date we already put out in consultation is uh, July next year. So at the moment, there's only five Chinese managers with funds that are Article 8. Everything else is Article 6. And the reason is availability of data on their underlying portfolio. So hopefully this solves that and we see more Chinese funds that are ESG compliant. Great. Well, given the time we're at, um, just wrap up and just a couple of thank yous for myself. First of all, thank you to, the, to my panelists, uh, particularly to T and Flo, who, who flew in for this event. Um, I thought that was a really excellent panel. I think there's so much happening out there. Um, and I think it really highlights certainly the team that kept coming through from a lot of questions and responses was around the education piece. Like there's a, there's a really important education piece needed across all market participants. And that's a two-way education flow. So I think seminars and sessions like this, I think, are really important. And hopefully we'll, we'll see more of these continue into, in, into the future. Um, can I also thank John and your team here at HSBC for hosting us today. Um, beautiful venue, beautiful morning, um, <laughs> wet, wet weather held up. Um, sunny Dublin. Sunny Dublin, yeah. Um, we were actually surprised as we see some rain in Dublin. Um, we haven't had it for a few weeks. Um, um, Pat, David and your team in Irish Funds, we really appreciate your supporting, supporting the event. And Pat, thank you for your, your, your comments this morning. thought they were uh, very, 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 very odd topic and team. And David, thanks to you. Um, you were the driving force behind this in terms of getting, getting this event together. So we do really appreciate, we really appreciate everyone uh, attending the event uh, today. A copy of Tay's slides will be available to, to, to those who have attended today. Um, so, again, we look forward to seeing you all at uh, an event uh, soon. Thank you all. Thank you.